First Thessalonians chapter five. This morning, we want to draw our attention just to a couple, a few short verses, verses sixteen to eighteen. Uh, I don't know about you, but I personally think that it is hard right now to overestimate just how depleted people feel at the moment and have felt over the last several months. Uh, many of you, as you sit here, the truth of the matter is, is you are tired or you are discouraged or you feel a bit aimless right now, like perhaps you've lost your purpose. Uh, many of you very much find yourself between a rock and a hard place. Uh, some of you are frustrated and you are discouraged by what's going on in the world around you right now and maybe in particular what's going on in our province. Uh, Some of you are really missing friends and loved ones that, for whatever reason, you have not been able to see in quite some time. And for others of you, work has been an absolute bear. Some of you are under great amounts of stress. Some of you are in the middle of some major transitions. Uh, I know that some of you in recent months have switched churches, and uh, maybe that was never your desire or intent, but you felt that it was God's will for your life, and, and, and maybe you needed to do that, and yet the reality is, is that that's not easy, and that's not fun. Uh, that's emotional, it's painful, and often uh, hurts are represented by that. Some of you have gone through great physical difficulties. Others of you are very, uh, have recently been very hurt by other people, and others of you feel great amounts of anxiety. I could easily go on. I think we know that it has been a tough stretch. And in stretches that are difficult, whenever life gets tough, it's easy to lose your purpose. What am I doing and why am I here? Just this aimless going through life. And I think one of the things that is so helpful to us as Christians is God gives us some very clear text that just in some very simple terms remind us of why we're here. And what it is that we are supposed to be doing. And and this text that I've drawn your attention to this morning is one of those texts. God wants worship to be your way of life. That is his will. And so with that, I draw your attention to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says to them, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, And then he explains, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is my will for you as a a Christian, a person who is in Christ. Uh, We have in this passage three commanded activities. They they come to us in, in pretty short phrases. But all three of those commanded activities, they're in the present tense, meaning that they are to be continuous ongoing actions of our lives. These are just the things that, that we do and should continue doing all the time. And the first commanded activity that we are given is this, you should rejoice always. Uh, That's the exact language of verse 16, rejoice always. You know that's actually the shortest verse, uh, not in our English Bibles, but of the Greek New Testament, and yet it is loaded with significance. Uh, That commanded activity for you to rejoice always, for you to rejoice all the time, uh, that is not as easy as it sounds, is it? Sure, I mean, you have your moments where that's easy, but there's also your moments where that's hard. Are you characterized by joy and rejoicing? I mean, does that characterize you? Think about the nature of this command. What does it mean to rejoice? Uh, Rejoice always. I think we need to highlight that's different. He doesn't say, you know what, you need to be happy, and you need to be happy all the time. 
After all, happiness is a very fickle thing that easily comes and goes because it's directly tied to your circumstances. So if your circumstances are up, you're happy. And if your circumstances are down, you're sad. Happiness comes and goes. Joy, though, is different. Because you can have joy regardless. You, you can have joy and rejoice regardless of your circumstances. In fact, you may recall that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10, he described himself as sorrowful. He had sorrow in his heart, and yet he said that he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How can you have joy and sorrow at the same time? How can you have joy in the midst of sorrow and in the midst of pain and difficulty and loss and struggle or whatever else it is that's going on in your life? Is that even possible? Well, apparently it is because God says to rejoice always. And it all comes down to this really on what does your joy depend? What does joy depend on? And maybe to, to help answer that question, I could just quickly give you a few reminders about joy. Here's a reminder for you. Jesus is your source of joy. You can turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, and we'll just pop over there quickly. You can appropriately find joy in many things. Uh, all kinds of things in life could potentially bring you joy. But you'll never be able to rejoice always unless Jesus is your ultimate source of joy. And if you're looking there at Philippians chapter 3, I would draw your attention to one phrase there in verse 1. What does he say? He says, rejoice. And, and notice the, where our joy comes or what we rejoice in or find joy in. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, you might think that's a reference to God the Father, and on the one hand, because God is uh, a triune God, it certainly is. But when, it, when he refers to the Lord there, lowercase, that's definitely a reference to Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus. Flip over to chapter 4 of the same book, Philippians 4, verse 4. What does he say there? Again, he says, you know what? You should rejoice. In what? Again, rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Happiness is in circumstances, but your joy is in Jesus Christ. It is in the Lord no matter what. Remember, Jesus is your source of joy. But do you think we can get any more specific than that? I mean, that is actually pretty specific, that Jesus Christ is our, our source of joy. But can we narrow it any further? I think we can. Here's a second reminder about joy. The resurrected Christ is your joy. Turn with me to the book of John, chapter 16. Jesus, in John chapter 16, he makes a statement uh, that basically just leaves his disciples completely and totally scratching their head. Jesus, what on earth are you talking about? He says in verse 11 of John chapter 16, or rather, verse 16 of John 16, he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. The disciples are like, what are you talking about? We're not going to see you. We're going to see you. It sounds like you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. We literally have no idea what you're talking about. Well, look with me at verse 19 of John 16. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves about? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Is that your question? Is that what you guys are talking about? Now, the disciples didn't realize it yet, but as Jesus spoke in that way, he was actually referring to his death and his resurrection. In a little while, you're not going to see me. Why? Because he's going to be dead. And then in a little while, you will see me. 
referring to his resurrection. Look at verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What's going to happen, Jesus says, and again, the disciples are confused because Jesus hasn't completely and and totally spit out exactly what's going to happen. But he's saying, Basically, the world's going to rejoice at my death, or at least we understand that to be what he meant now that we, that's happened. The world's going to rejoice at my death, and you're going to sorrow, and you're going to grieve. The world will rejoice at that, and the disciples would grieve and sorrow, but don't worry, though, Jesus says, your sorrow will be turned into what? Joy. And then look at verse 21. He gives an illustration of what's going to happen. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. I mean, she's having these painful, painful contractions. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus compares what's about to happen with his death, burial, and resurrection to a woman giving birth. Her hour comes. Her water's broken, whatever. And she's starting to have these contractions and it is hurting and it is painful. And all she can think about is the pain. And then all of a sudden, after however many contractions, out comes this beautiful little baby boy or girl. And what's and it's, the, the pain, the anguish, the sorrow is immediately replaced in a moment with joy. As she thinks about her little baby. Look at verse 22. With me now. This is the verse that I brought you to this passage for. And what I want you to do as I read this verse, why don't you try to see if you can't pinpoint what the Christian's joy is specifically? Verse 22 So also you have sorrow now. Again, he's speaking about the fact that he's going to die. But I will see you again, speaking of the resurrection. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. What is my joy as a Christian? What is your joy very specifically, very concretely as a Christian? It's the resurrected Christ. And how vibrant your joy can be. Your joy can be just as vibrant and alive as Jesus is alive. The resurrected Christ is your joy when your joy is in him. What you have is a living, breathing joy because he is a living, breathing Savior. The resurrected Christ is your joy. And another reminder connected to that, no one and no thing can take the joy of Jesus from you. Look at verse 22 again. So also now you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Did you catch that last phrase? When the disciples see Jesus after his resurrection, they will have an overwhelming joy that no one can take away. No one will take your joy from you. If your ultimate joy this morning is in your rights and in your freedoms, or if it's in your relationships and your loved ones or your hobbies and your career, or your health and your physical abilities, or whatever it is that you treasure and value. Many, many, things, many of those things could be very good. 
But if your ultimate joy is in those things, every single one of those things can be taken away from you in a moment. Really, I mean, ask Job. He had it all. And any of the things that Job had could have been his ultimate source of joy. And one day those things are there and the next minute they are all gone. That type of thing, maybe not to the extent that it happened to Job, but those type of things happen. The things that you love, the things that you cherish, they disappear. But if your joy is the resurrected Christ and the hope of the gospel, that means that no one, no thing and no circumstance can take your joy away. Because no one can take the living, breathing Jesus or what he did from you away. Who could take that away from you? Can anybody take that from you? No. And so Jesus says you will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Is your joy dead? Really? Has your joy died? Is your joy dead because Jesus is not? Why do you lose your joy? Let's just be honest. In, in recent months, many of us, myself included, we've forfeited our joy. We've handed it over. And it's been taken away from us because, one, we've either attached it to the wrong things or ultimately failed to attach it to Jesus. The ultimate object of the Christian's joy transcends the earthly things that we tend to root it in. Are, are we not people of the resurrected Christ? Is our God dead? Or is he alive? He is alive. And so may our joy be too. Uh, think with me about the timing of this command in verse 16. We're told in, in very simple words back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Because happiness is in circumstances, but your joy is in the Lord no matter what. All of a sudden, this commanded activity is something that you can actually do. You can rejoice always. It's not an impossible command. Remember, Jesus is alive and he's coming again. And if you fix your mind on Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the fact that he's coming again, that he is alive, you will have joy. Think with me also as we look at verse 16. Think about the God behind this command. With each of these commanded activities, there's something that's implied about God. You can rejoice always, and maybe I can word it this way. You can rejoice always or always rejoice because God is always something. Rejoice always because God is always what? Well, you could fill in the blank. And you could probably think of a lot of different things. What do you know is always true about God? Well, he's always the same. We read about Jesus being the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He never changes his mind. We know that he's always near, that he'll never leave us or forsake us. We know that Jesus always knows how many hairs are on our head. You think about that from the Gospel of Matthew, that, that not a hair from your head falls to the ground without Jesus noting that. That at any given moment, Jesus could tell you exactly how many hairs are on your head. He's paying attention. We also know that Jesus is always living to make intercession for us at the Father's right hand. We know that he's always alive and that he's coming again. The news in recent months has made me think about our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Can you think of some places in the world right now that you'd prefer not to be a Christian? <laughs> I mean, I can. How does an Afghan brother find joy right now? 
I mean, I've seen videos and pictures of mothers handing their babies over walls to soldiers in Afghanistan. How does an Afghan brother find joy right now? How does a Chinese brother find joy right now or for the past several decades? How does an Iranian brother, where Christians are being beheaded for Christ, how does, how does an Iranian brother find joy? How can brothers and sisters in Christ rejoice, as this verse says, always, even in circumstances like that? Well, the only way that can be done is if their joy is directly attached to the resurrected Christ. And don't kid yourself just by thinking, well, you live in a different country, you live in a different world, and you can place your joy in all these other things. No, it's found in Christ and in Christ alone. He is our joy. Because God wants worship to be your way of life, you should rejoice always. A couple questions for you. How's that going for you? And have you lost your joy? And what's it going to take for you to reclaim it and get it back? I would encourage you with this. I think if you're sitting here going, yeah, you know what, that, <laughs> that has been a struggle for me. Or maybe today I have it, but yeah, no, this is real. Like this is where I'm living. Or maybe right now you're just sitting here going, yeah, I don't, I'm miserable. And I don't have joy. What should you do? Well, I think that you should identify what you've hitched your wagon to for joy and repent. And actually try to pinpoint it. You know, if you could take out a pen and paper and sit down with that and go, okay, my joy has been what? I'm going to write it down. Thing number one, thing number two, thing number three. Maybe you've got two things, seven things. Wow, I've been looking to all of these things for my joy. And I'm not finding it. That's wrong. And God, would you forgive me for looking at the things here of earth to bring me joy instead of looking to heaven? To identify those things and repent. And then on the flip side of that, then to seek to tether your joy to Christ yet again. How do you do that? Well, I think just practically, if Jesus says that you will see me, I will rise again and you will rejoice and no one can take your joy from you. If you want to regain that joy that you seem to have lost, maybe just a very simple thing that you could do is open up your, your Bible to the gospel accounts, to the resurrection accounts and just read them. And go back and read Peter and Paul's resurrection text. There's a huge one at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And just, you know, read about the resurrection again and the gospel and the fact that my Savior's alive. And I, I think often what happens as well is that, that music uh, speaks to our heart and our souls. And maybe one of the greatest things you could do this weekend is just go home and, and, and find some of your favorite songs of worship focused on the resurrection. I'm just going to listen to these and I'm going to meditate on them. And I'm going to cast my mind on the, my risen Savior again. Reclaim your joy. And there may be some of you here and you need to bow before this resurrected Christ. You don't have joy. You've never really had it in your whole life or it's been a very fleeting thing because you've never met Jesus. You've never had a relationship with him. Jesus is joy. And he wants you to know that he gave his life for you on the cross, that he left the joy and glories of heaven to come here to earth to pay for your sins, to live perfectly where you failed and to give his life on the cross and satisfy God's wrath for your sin. And to pay the price for your sin. So that you could be cleansed. So that you could be forgiven. So that your sins could be washed away. And what Jesus tells you to do in response to all that is you repent and believe.
Confess your sins to God. Say, God, I'm a sinner who deserves your wrath and I believe what Jesus did for me is enough to save me from my sins. God, will you save me? And will you make me yours? And will you fill me with the joy of Jesus? Next, Paul turns our attention to a second commanded activity. You should pray without ceasing. Verse 17, we read these words, pray without ceasing. You and I could easily go our entire day and hardly talk to God at all. That's definitely not God's will for your life. It's definitely not God's will for my life. What is God's will? Well, God wants you to, uh, it's his desire that you would regularly and frequently and often communicate with him all throughout your day. Think about the nature of this command. We are told to pray. That's a word we are familiar with. But what is prayer and what does it mean to pray and what does prayer include? Well, simply put, we might define prayer as personal communication with God, right? It's just, I'm just talking to God. And I don't have to do that with a bunch of formalities and a bunch of um, really religious words. I can just talk to God. Prayer has been described as the highest activity of which the human spirit is capable. The highest activity of which the human spirit is capable. Why would it be described that way? Well, as one person put it, at its best, it's the closest we come to returning to the original state in which we were created. Direct communication with God. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden? And we read how uh, God walked with them in the cool of the day and there's just communication. We were created for that. We were made for communion with God and prayer can take on many different forms. You can think of it as conversation or communion or fellowship. Uh, it can include different things like petition where we make supplications. We make petitions for ourselves. Uh, we ask God to do things on our behalf. We can also make intercession or intercede for other people where we're praying specific things for others. God, would you do this for this person? God, would you save that person? Would you help this person? Would you resolve this problem? Uh, prayer is also confession where we come to God and say, God, I've sinned. I've wronged you. I've broken your commands and I am not right with you. Would you forgive me? And also as a part of prayer, you have things like adoration and praise and thanksgiving where we just go to God and we say, thank you. God, you're amazing. God, you are great. God, you are good. And yet oddly enough, also in prayer, we have a category of prayer that we might call grievance or complaint. Something we see in the Psalms often with David when his life has become difficult and he's grieving and he's sorrowing and he's struggling and he goes to the Lord and he pours it all out. Often with great emotion, often with great angst, but taking all that's within and giving it to the Lord. That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to pray. And again, think about the timing of this command. We're told to pray without ceasing. That's not to say that God expects you to pray every moment of your day. That's not even possible. I mean, maybe some of you ladies could multitask like that. But for some of us men, it's like, I'm doing this right now, <laughs> and then I'll do this. But I can't do both at the same time. It's God's desire or will, though, that your day would involve regular communication with him. And it is important for you to set aside blocks or times of, of prayer where you sit down and maybe you pray and talk to God at length. But you can't give God blocks of time all throughout your day. You have other things going on. You have a job. You have children. You have responsibilities. 
However, what you can do is fill your day with lots of little communications. In fact, I would say that most of you already know how to do this and you're probably quite good at it. If you're holding a phone in your hand or in your pocket, think about what you do with that phone. From the moment you get up in the morning until the moment you go to bed at night, many of you get up and before your feet even hit the ground, you're already texting somebody, communicating with somebody. That happens all day long. All day long, we're picking up our phones, sending little messages, putting them down all day long. Texting friends and loved ones. Think about how you communicate with someone you love. I know that uh, for my wife and I, when we started dating, we uh, were living several hours apart at the time. So our relationship started long distance and we would spend a lot of time on the phone. And we would often have those uh, times of long conversation on the phone or just talking to each other um, for however long we wanted to. But you can't do that all day long. And often what we would do as well is just text each other throughout the day, all throughout the day, text here, text there. Think about what happens when you text, right? You, you pick up your phone, you send a text, maybe someone responds right away, you send another text back, and then what do you do with your phone? You set it down, you set it on the countertop, you set it on your desk and you get to work or focusing on something else. You maybe don't think about your phone for 30 minutes or three hours and you pick it up again, oh, a text, and you text back, and it's just what we do all day long. And prayer is kind of like that. It is important to have those blocks of conversation with the Lord, but it's also important to keep the shorter little prayer conversation going with God all day long. And you think about how you text, your, conversa- your, your, your focus is often broken. It's not this pure, concentrated focus, and yet that's okay. It's okay for you to to send a a very short prayer to the Lord, so to speak, to to say a sentence of communication with him and then to stop. The word that's translated in verse 17 or the phrase translated without ceasing or constantly in some translations, uh, it was used elsewhere to describe a hacking cough. And all of us have had that at some point many times throughout our life. When you have a cough, You don't cough every moment of the day. It's not like you just cough and cough and cough and you can't stop. But your cough comes and then you don't cough. It just keeps coming back all day long. You cough. And that's how prayer should be. It just keeps coming back. And maybe it's short, but it just keeps coming and it just keeps coming. And that's what God wants us to do is to keep communicating with him so that he is very much part of our day. And with this command as well, there's a God behind it. Think about the God behind this command. You can pray without ceasing because God never ceases to be what? You can pray constantly because God constantly what? Well, we could fill in the blank. You could fill in the blank. Think about some of the things that we know. You can pray without ceasing because God never ceases to be available. God never closes his door. Uh, I, I have a home office. I work from home. Four little kids. Do you know what happens every day of, of my week, multiple times a day? Some kid runs down to my office, one of our kids, and maybe knocks, maybe doesn't, comes plowing into dad's office. And you know what I tell my kids? I say, daddy's busy right now. <laughs> you need to go out. Because daddy has things he needs to do. And without saying it in these words, basically I'm saying to my kids, you know, daddy doesn't have time for you right now. I love you, but you need to go out. You realize God never does that with you. As an earthly father, I am bound to one place at a time and can only do one thing at a time. 
But that's not true of our Heavenly Father. His door is always open. The invitation is always there. He never gets too busy. He never has too many balls up in the air that he can't juggle them all. He never ceases to care. He never ceases to have power to do something about the things that we're bringing to him. He never ceases to listen to his kids. And so we're told, I'll pray without ceasing. Talk to him all the time. Because God wants worship to be your way of life, you should pray without ceasing. And uh, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can use your time in the car to maybe take a few moments between this meeting and that that meeting to, to talk to the Lord and uh, pray just even momentarily. Using your time in the car or your time walking or your time going from here to there. You can use the little moments. It's okay to pray short prayers. God wants to hear from you. We have one final command in verse 18. You should give thanks in all circumstances. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. That's extremely difficult to do. What comes easily and naturally is actually grumbling and complaining. And yet what God wants you to do is say thank you to him regularly as a way of life. Think about the nature of this command. What does it mean and what does it look like to give thanks? How do we do that? Well, a few things come to mind. We obviously give thanks to God with our lips. Hebrews 13 verse 15 talks about the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. It's it's something that's verbal. We thank him through prayer. We thank him uh, through lifting our voices in song and worship. And we have a song that we sing here called Jesus, Thank You. And we're singing, saying thank you to God. But we also give thanks to God with our actions and with our lives. We express our gratitude to him by what we do. For example, you remember the book of Romans and after 11 chapters of explaining what God has done for us through Christ and the gospel, you get to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and Paul says, I urge you, based on the mercies of God and salvation, then to present your lives, your bodies as as living sacrifices. Out of gratitude for what God has done for you. It's a way that we say thank you. We also give thanks with special gifts. Uh, have you ever bought or made something or, or made someone a special gift just to say thank you and I love you and I appreciate you and what you've done for me? And to express your love and gratitude towards that person. Now that's how, just on the human level, that we show thanks. You've, you've done something that I could never really thank you for and here's just a small gift to say how much I appreciate you and what you've done for me. One of the ways that we give thanks to God is by giving. And we do that. uh, uh, The Bible teaches that we should do that with our resources and and planned uh, regular ways. And yet sometimes I think that God works in our hearts and we're reminded of what he's done for us and we sit there and you go, I just want to do something special for God and I want to give him some kind of gift, something that he cares about because I love him. We also give thanks to God for people and for God's working in their lives. And you know what we should do? We should let those people hear it. Uh, What am I talking about? I think I can easily demonstrate this from God's word. Think about how every one of Paul's letters starts. How does he start every letter, almost every letter? Well, he starts almost every one of his epistles and letters in the New Testament by thanking God. And when he does that, he's, he's often thanking God for the people to whom he is writing. And he talks about how he's doing that privately with God all the time. And yet he's writing this in a letter and sending it to them. And these people are reading it. 
Paul is expressing his thanks to God for people, and those people are hearing about it. You may be really thankful for for some people in your life. You may be really thankful for how God has worked in their lives and used them and how they've blessed you. Let those people hear it. I mean, you could love and appreciate your spouse, and you could have all those feelings and gratitude and never say it. Let people hear it. Your spouse, your friends, your mentors, people who are serving you and your kids. There are so many people, I think, in your life, if you think about it, that you are thankful for. Why not take the time to let them know that? It's one thing to feel it, and it's another thing to say it. Think about the timing here of this command. Verse 18 says, give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, that phrase, uh, different translations translated different ways, some highlighting the circumstantial idea, others highlighting the, the time idea. And the original language really captures both. It, it covers time and circumstance. It, it doesn't mean that we need to thank God for evil or that we need to be stoic without any kinds of feelings. But the, the Christian really can give thanks to God in all circumstances. Why? Well, I want to show you why. Uh, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We're going to look at these famous verses, verses 28 and 29. As Christians, we know that all things work together for good, right? All things work together for good. We love that verse. Do we know what it means? Well, let's see if we we can't work towards a better understanding of this passage. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 28. Paul writes to the Romans, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, so if I'm a Christian, all things are going to work together for good. If God's called me, if he saved me, then that means everything in my life is going to work out for good. Well, what does that mean? What does God mean by good? How does God define good? And he explains that in the next verse, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, catch this next phrase, to be conformed to the image of his son. Here's God's definition. It's just all right from the text here. Good equals something. Good in verse 28 equals being conformed to the image of his son in verse 29. You want to define God's good for your life? It's you looking like Jesus. It's you changing to look more like Jesus. And what God is doing, he's using every circumstance, the ones you like and the ones you don't like and the ones you would never choose, the ones you would never pick. He's using all of those things to make you look like somebody. Jesus. And to make you look just a little bit more like your Lord and Savior. All things work together for good. And that means that you can give thanks in all circumstances. Think about the God behind this command in verse 18. You can give thanks in all circumstances because in all circumstances, God is what? Well, he's working to make you look more like Jesus. And that's awesome. And it may be painful. You may not like it, but the end product is amazing. When I was, sometime when I was in university or seminary, I was given an assignment either, I don't remember if it was in class or at the church that I was 
a part of at the time, but the assignment or the challenge was basically this. And I think it was around Thanksgiving time. Take, uh, it was either 30 or 60 minutes. I think it was a full 60 minutes. And you take those 60 minutes and you spend those 60 minutes in prayer. And the only thing you can do in those 60 minutes is thank and praise God. No requests, no petitions, just thanks and praise. And so here I am with this challenge going, okay, I'm going to do this. I mean, 60 minutes, that's a long time for most of us to pray. <laughs> you know, most of us, that's like, wow, that's, that's a chunk, right? And so I set out to do it. And, and what happens is in your first five minutes, I mean, you've hit everything big in your life, right? I mean, you've thanked God for your family and your job and your stuff and the people in your life and your food and your house. And you've got 55 minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> and what I found as I started to try to pray that way, having been challenged to do so, is all of a sudden you're like, okay, you're thinking of all these, what we might think of small things that all came from God. And were all God's goodness to me. You have to start to really think of the specific details of God's goodness in your life. And if you do that for 30 minutes or if you do that for 60 minutes, your heart's going to be full. And you're going to walk away refreshed. I think we forget how good God is to us sometimes. All those little things, the big things, the small things. They're all from God. Take the time to thank him. Because God wants you to worship him as a way of life. You should give him thanks in all circumstances. Maybe you want to pray like I just described sometime this weekend. Maybe you could sit down and go, I'm just going to write out a list of a hundred things that I'm thankful to God for. Or maybe you need to give God a special gift. You know, God, I've, you've just been so good to me, and I want to give you this. Or maybe what you should do is express your thanksgiving to God uh, for another person. Express that to another person. And I'm going to go thank these five people. I'm going to write some notes to a peop some people, and I'm just going to say thank you like Paul did in his letters. Who, who is it that you need to thank? Because it's God's will for your life. You should worship. I want to conclude here by just reading this text one more time. Paul writes, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And he concludes with this, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's will for you as a Christian. And so let's make sure by God's grace that we are people who live uh, our whole lives as acts of worship to the King. Would you bow with me at this time?